Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Welcome to episode 41. In this episode, we'll conclude the interview with Peter Asaro. He is a professor at the New School in New York and is a philosopher of science, technology, and media. His current research focuses on the social, cultural, political, legal, and ethical dimensions of automation and autonomous technologies from a perspective that combines media theory with science and technology studies. He has written widely cited papers on autonomous weapons from the perspective of just war theory and human rights, and the legal and moral issues raised by law enforcement robots and predictive policing. He also examines agency and autonomy, liability and punishment, and privacy and surveillance as it applies to consumer robots, industrial automation, smart buildings, UAVs and drones, and autonomous vehicles. That's exactly what we talked about in the last episode, and we'll get into more of it now. Let's get back to talking with Peter Asaro. You mentioned a couple of organizations earlier, and I'd like to understand the relationship between them and their achievements. The International Committee for Robot Arms Control and the Campaign to Stop Killer Robots. And I'd like to know more about what has happened with that, what it achieved. I believe Amnesty International was involved. Can you tell us something about its activities and aims? Sure. So uh, I'll start with my own NGO, which is the International Committee for Robot Harms Control, which I co-founded with some other scientists and researchers in 2009. And we're really a group of academics from you know robotics, AI, philosophy, law, international relations. I think we've got some anthropologists in there as well. So we're primarily working as academics, but we're concerned about this issue and sort of organize ourselves through this as an expert group. And we're part of a coalition of non-governmental organizations called the Campaign to Stop Killer Robots. And that was founded with nine groups back in 2012. <laughs> Put me on the spot to remember them all, but it was you know, Human Rights Watch, the Nobel Women's Initiative, the International Committee for Robot Arms Control, this group called Article 36 in the UK, a Canadian Minds Action Canada group, the Pugwash International group, AAR Japan, which is a large Japanese NGO. And I think that's most of them. I'm sure I'm forgetting. Uh, the WILF, Women's International League of Peace and Freedom. Um, and now we've grown. We've added Amnesty International to the steering committee. And we've been joined by, I think we're at about 170 NGOs internationally representing, I think, 70 different countries now around the world. And we've had a few big international uh, meetings to coordinate all these national level campaigns around the world. And we started out at the UN, there was a report that was presented to the Human Rights Council of the UN by the Special Rapporteur for Extrajudicial Summary Executions, Christoph Heinz, back in 2012. And the Human Rights Council doesn't really like to deal with arms control issues, so they sort of 
said, oh, that's a nice report, but we're not going to do anything about it. And a different body within the United Nations called the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, uh, which is a treaty body that's designed to govern conventional weapon systems, uh, was created in the 1980s, took it up as one of their issues. And they started with a series of what they call informal expert meetings and then elevated that to formal discussions called a group of governmental experts or GGE. And there's lots of acronyms in the UN. It's the CCW GGE. And they went with lethal autonomous weapon systems, which is laws, which is kind of odd because we're talking about laws to govern laws. Um, but I, I usually just drop the L and say autonomous weapon system. And so there's been since 2013, there's been a series of meetings within this body of the CCW every year to discuss whether it's necessary to have regulation of these things. And if so, what are they? What would be regulated? And we're now several years into the GGE, and we're really hoping that it would escalate to the next level, which would be the negotiation of a treaty element, which would either be a uh, a new protocol to the existing CCW treaty. And they have, you know, they've done in the past certain protocols for landmines and cluster munitions and permanently blinding lasers and things like that. Unfortunately, the ones they've done in the past for landmines and cluster munitions were ineffective, essentially. And so even though they did something about it, it was necessary to have a stronger international treaty. And in those cases, the countries went out on their own and started what's called an outside process. And so you have the Oslo process that Norway initiated, and you have the Ottawa process that Canada initiated, which was for landmines, and Oslo was for cluster munitions. And they basically got an international treaty signed by enough countries around the world that it becomes international law. And then once that happens, it kind of comes back into the UN as a sort of, the UN is kind of an umbrella organization that oversees all of these treaties that meet annually and things like that. Mm. So that's one option. The other option would be like the nuclear ban treaty, which went through the General Assembly of the United Nations. And so before that, the arms trade treaty also went through the General Assembly. The problem with the CCW and why their previous protocols were weak and why we've had trouble getting any kind of protocol over the past you know, eight and years now is that it's a body that is ruled by consensus, which means effectively every state has a veto. So any one state whose party can just say no and nothing happens. And so what winds up getting passed is usually pretty watered down. What's better about the, the sort of the outside process or the General Assembly works by majority. So you can get a, just a majority vote to pass some of these things. And then outside, you can just get like-minded states to, to do it. And if you know a significant number of states, 50 or 70 states are willing to sign on, then that starts even if states don't sign it, it's recognized as international law. There's been a lot of controversy around the nuclear ban treaty because the states that have nuclear weapons haven't signed on to it. But you can imagine, you know, there's a handful of states that have nuclear weapons. And if all the other states in the world are saying, but nuclear weapons should be illegal, they are illegal, we've all signed a treaty that says they're illegal, you guys are the, you know, the outliers, in this. And, and if you use nuclear weapons, you know, they are illegal and you're sort of violating this treaty. And that treaty just went into effect uh, in January. There's quite a difference, though, in that you can spot a uranium refining facility from space, but there's no way that you could detect artificial intelligence or even manufacture of 
killer drones, which actually makes me think about the title of campaign to stop killer robots. It seems somewhat polarizing in that there are a lot of AI professionals who are like, oh no, stop talking about killer robots. And then Elon Musk talks about killer robots, which makes them all the more energetic about stop talking about this. We're nowhere close to Terminators walking through the streets. And Stuart Russell at Berkeley, who's artificial intelligence expert and teacher and author, and says that he will not do any interviews if they're going to run a picture of the Terminator next to him, and they do anyway. And then he produces the Slaughterbots video, which is literally about killer robots. Does that title get in the way? Because it's quite sensationalized. I can't think killer robot without a picture of the Terminator coming into my head. I can't separate that. Yeah, I mean, it was an issue for us as far as the press running that Terminator photo every time they talked about us for many years. They've, I think they've mostly gotten over that. And now there's enough other things they can show pictures of, these new you know, drones and, and so forth. And I, I agree, yeah, that it doesn't capture exactly what I think the, the core concern is. But I also teach in a media studies department, and I recognize that the fact that it grasps public attention, that people want to talk about it, the media wants to cover it, and the UN has been willing to discuss it, even though they're going to substitute the phrase, you know, lethal autonomous weapon systems, shows that it's a real concern. In one sense, it should be kind of a no-brainer to say, well, yeah, of course you don't. We don't need killer robots. <laughs> that sounds like a terrible idea. And yet we see, you know, militaries developing the key components and elements and deploying them and testing them. And you're like, well, they're building killer robots. <laughs> um, exactly. And of course, I mean, there's all these other concerns that we might have around technology and AI. And we started to see a lot uh, of that. And I've written also about that in terms of bias and predictive policing and all sorts of things in which automated algorithmic decision-making is going to impact human life. And these questions about human responsibility, about the ability to appeal decisions that have been made, to find out you know, the transparency and the accountability behind those decisions, I think are crucial across society. And this is a case in which you know, the decisions that are being made are irrevocable and fundamental. I mean, that's about taking human life. And they get to these deep questions about what is human dignity? What are our rights with respect to automated decision processes, with respect to holding to account the humans who designed and built and implement those systems? And so I think, you know, it sort of transcends a whole lot of questions. It's easy to sensationalize, to be sure. And it's been in science fiction for a while. But in fact, you know, in the, the Slaughterbots video itself, I think, has that sort of mixed. Well, it's captivating. Everybody wants to talk about it. People bring it up all the time. You know, we didn't produce it as part of the campaign because it doesn't make the argument that we need to make to convince states to sign treaties about this. But it captures the public's attention. And most of those technologies are, are that are required to implement the system that's displayed in that kind of Black Mirror-esque video are readily available. Like we, we could build systems like that if we really wanted to. The big hurdle from what you see in that video, I would say, is the battery life of the drones. Like that's mm. the constraining factor. Or from sourcing the plastic explosive. Yeah, well, right. I wonder if it illustrates perhaps a bigger issue is not the use of these things in state warfare or the 
accidental consequences of its use in a democracy or even by non-state actors, but in states that are oppressive regimes. I'm thinking particularly about China and what they could do against the Uyghurs in particular, and they've shown no hesitancy in applying AI for all the kinds of applications that give us palpitations over here. And even at the end of the Slaughterbots video, those drones are deployed against the students by actors that are not apparently working for the government, except that they achieve the aims of suppressing dissent against the government by the students that were protesting the use of that very technology. So one could say maybe that was being done by some under-the-table arrangement there. Is that perhaps something that we should look more at? Is there a way of addressing that concern? Because a nation could say, look, it's our business, what we do with our own people, stay out. Yeah, well, I think there is a serious concern about the use of these kinds of systems in policing and especially in, say, crowd control and disrupting peaceful protests and killing protesters. And we've seen you know, a range of different events in the last few years, starting in the Arab Spring, where in Egypt in particular, the military was ordered to turn on the public that was in Tahir Square, a million people peacefully protesting and refused. The military actually refused to do that. And that led to the fall of the Mubarak regime. Would robots refuse the orders? No, of course not. They're going to just do what they're told to do. And so that the idea that you could kind of win a popular uprising by appealing to the sentiments uh, or the politics or the humanity of the military is sort of precluded by these systems. And that would be one of many sort of bad sort of outcomes. And even in, I think, in China's use of military in Tiananmen Square in the 1980s, they had to pull in troops from far-flung regions of China because local troops would not have attacked the, the protesters in Tiananmen. But I think, you know, a lot of really bad things have been done by human beings that convinced other human beings to do them. And uh, that's not going to stop. But you add a whole other dimension to it with the machines. And I think what the Slaughterbot video also captures that you were getting at a little bit in your question was the lack of attributability. Like these Slaughterbots are coming in and killing everybody, but nobody really knows who's controlling them or why. You know, they, they kind of figure out that people who watched some video have been targeted and it's a human rights video. But is it, you know, the government? Is it some terrorist group? I don't think the video resolves this question on purpose because I think we see this already with cyber attack that we often don't know or don't know for certain who the source of an attack is. We may have an initial idea of who is behind an attack and then we may, you know, develop a more a clearer picture of that over time. And now we can say, look back on hacks that happened years ago and say, oh, yeah, we're pretty certain now that it was this group. But at the time, of course, you have to respond in terms of mitigating the attack, but also whether or not you should retaliate and who should you retaliate against. And that level of uncertainty makes that all the more difficult, which means it's much easier to sort of get away with an attack, if you will. And this is, again, like this idea that I think we could see very likely a lot more assassinations, mm -hmm. which, again, are potentially not attributable. Uh, we saw an attempted assassination of the president of Venezuela by drone a few years ago, some small explosive drones. And now the, 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 this, you know, just strapping plastic explosives to DGI 
hobbyist drones is incredibly common through Syria and, and Iraq, where ISIS is still operating. They're, they're using this a lot to try to attack U.S. forces mm-hmm. or other forces that are in the area. And that sort of thing is, you know, obviously very difficult to try to regulate and international treaties already ban, you know, improvised explosive devices and things like that. So these groups aren't going to follow that. And I think this kind of comes back to a question you asked before, which is, you know, what is a treaty going to do to actually ensure that you're not coding something in the basement or designing a bunch of drones and secret or something? And I think that's where it really comes to states and what states, one, feel is necessary for their own security or for international stability to enforce. And that's, you know, questions about verification. How do, you know, if I'm really afraid that you're going to build a robot army and invade me, that I need something that's going to reassure me that you're not. And what is that? And what does that look like? If what I'm really afraid of is simply that you're going to use these things and they're going to, you know, that use is going to be atrocious, then I can just wait until you use it and then use, you know, the condemnation of the international community and sanctions and things like that after you've used a technology. And we've seen a mixture of these across the treaties around biological weapons, chemical weapons, nuclear weapons in the past, that chemical weapons don't have really strict, you know, regimes where we get to go in and inspect. It does require states to track the production of chemicals that are have industrial uses, but could also be turned into chemical weapons but they're not prohibited from having those or or using them for their normal uses. But if they use a chemical weapon, which even states like Syria, that were using them on their own people and were not party to that treaty, there was a huge international movement to condemn that and to hold them accountable and to get them to commit to destroying those weapons and not using them again. So I think, you know, there's a range of options. We could spend so much more time on this. Unfortunately, we don't have it. In the time we have remaining, I would like you to just tell us about a, a documentary you made a few years ago called Love Machine. Where can we find it? What does it tell us? Right, Love Machine. So, uh, yeah, that was my transition I talked to you about earlier, where I kind of got into thinking about outside of a intelligence as a human property, like what other essential human properties are we thinking about trying to replicate in machines? Of course, creativity, people talk about a lot, but I got really interested in the embodied forms of humanity. So love, emotion, sexuality, and, you know, of course, there's all kinds of machines for sexual pleasure and things like that, but also people trying to develop robots and AI as companions and potentially replacing humans in terms of, you know, not just certain kinds of social relations or work relations, but in terms of intimate human relations and friendship and love and companionship, things like that. So it's a video that explores that. Uh, I talked to a lot of philosophers and roboticists, and that was, you know, shot in 1999, 2000. So 20 years ago, and I was thinking the the 20th anniversary of the release is coming up and we were in discussions before the pandemic to, you know, do a reissue. And that was, of course, all before streaming was around. So thinking about getting it streaming right now, it's on DVD. You can email me if you want a copy and I'll, I'll hook you up. But um, yeah, I think it needs to, it needs to get out on the web and more people should see it. And it's funny because a lot of the people in that video that I interviewed then are still talking about those things today. And back then they're like, oh yeah, it'll be three to five years and we're going to have, you know, robots that do this and that talk and do that. 
And 20 years later, we don't. Uh, the technology turns out to be much more difficult than people anticipate in certain respects and in others, much easier. The, the idea that we have Alexa and Siri and these conversational agents that are pretty sophisticated, even if they're really just um, satisfying command requests for the most part, they're not actually really having conversations, but that they're so ubiquitous and that they're able to collect so much data from use to improve over time makes them much more effective. It's much harder when you get to the machinery, things that move. You know, we don't have a robot that can stand at a sink and do dishes, right? But we can also just make dishwashers. If you <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But it still takes a lot of time to put things in and take them out. I right. speak from some experience, not as much as my wife's. So just in conclusion here, you've been doing a tremendous amount of research, thinking, teaching, writing, and filmmaking about the social, psychological impacts and military aspects of artificial intelligence here. Where can people follow you, find more about what you're doing, learn about the things that you care about and get involved? Yeah, so my website is peteracero.org. And you'll find a link to my Twitter handle there. You'll also find all of my published papers are on my website and I'll actually all the syllabi for all of my courses. And to the extent that the readings are publicly available, they're linked right there in the syllabi. So if you're interested in any of those topics, I probably taught a class about it at some point and you can find it there. And yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter to some extent, and that's that's about it for social media, <laughs> trying to limit that as much as possible. But um, yeah, and I'm trying to figure out how to get that movie online eventually. Oh, I'd love to see it myself. It's been fantastic having you on the show. The time has flown by. Maybe we could do this again sometime because there are so many more things we could talk about. I'd be happy to come back. Thank you. For right now, Peter Cerro, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That's the end of the interview. I know from the courses I've taught that people can get down from hearing about these sorts of concerns and risks and talking a lot about things that threaten us collectively and existentially. And I don't want that to happen to you. After all, we have enough to deal with with the pandemic at the moment. And our collective mental health is, well, another thing to get concerned about. This is starting to get very meta. No point in getting down about being down, though. And what people like Peter and I have learned to do, and what I want our listeners and my readers to do, is to treat this objectively. To look at it, well, kind of like an AI, if you will, logically. To take the way you feel about it and use it to motivate you, not to hold you back. If you want to make a difference, like the title of a book that came out 20 or so years ago, you can't afford the luxury of a negative thought. The stakes are too important to let you be held back by being down. Peter focuses on the issues of these weapons every day and recognizes the importance of that. Similarly, Thomas Homer Dixon, who was on episodes 25 and 26, wrote a whole book on the topic of staying effective in the face of these kinds of existential issues and what they can do to our mental state, a book called Commanding Hope. So my challenge to you is to find that way you can engage with the important issues that we face and make a difference to them without, so to speak, getting it on you. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, the battle between facial recognition and privacy is heating up as an AI tool has been released to anonymize your face. 
If your face is online, it has probably already been imported into the AI deployed by the Clearview company, which made the results of a massive sweep of that data and the engine for searching it available to law enforcement agencies and attracted a great deal of attention and not a little outrage and lawsuits. Now comes a startup called Generated Media, who can give you an image to use online that is based on your face, but won't trigger facial recognition algorithms. It uses AI, of course, to take your image and make a face that looks kinda sorta like you, enough for people to recognize you, close enough so that someone meeting you on a blind date won't feel cheated, but to clear view will look like someone else. Some fictional or otherwise non-existent person, as opposed to someone on the other side of the country who won't appreciate being mistaken for you, that is. And you can get as many of these images as you like, and they'll all look kind of like you, but different from each other to facial recognition. Your move, Clearview. In next week's episode, I will be talking with science fiction author and screenwriter David Gerald. In science fiction fandom, David is a household word for his work, especially on Star Trek, for which he wrote the landmark, hilarious episode, The Trouble with Tribbles, plus stories for the animated series The Next Generation and appeared as an extra in Star Trek The Motion Picture. He has written award-winning science fiction novels such as The Man Who Folded Himself, which explores numerous permutations of time travel paradoxes, and series including The War Against a Tor, about an alien invasion, and The Dingiliad, a young adult series about the adventures of the Dingilian family in space. It's mostly for his 1969 novel When Harley Was One, and its substantial rewrite in 1988, though, that I'll be talking with him, because that novel examines the interaction between a newly awakened artificial consciousness and its human creator, and how the conversations change them both. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.